From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, we'll look at how black history is taught in schools and the challenges that part of our history is facing in classrooms. Then we'll learn how a local professor is honoring the legacy of her former student. That was one of Ashkan's gifts, was really understanding the importance of community and using historical research to understand the past in ways that make us understand the present. Plus, we'll tell you about February and how to get your own bowl. With a good bowl of pho, you get that, that richness of the broth. It's not like chicken noodle soup, you know, from the American restaurants. It's something that when you take that first sip, it fills your soul. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Following the police murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, the country was in the midst of what some called a racial reckoning. But since then, close to 20 states have introduced or passed laws that challenge diversity, equity, and inclusion work, especially in schools. Bans include teaching things like critical race theory, historical differences in how Americans have been treated based on race, and other aspects of black history. Recently in Florida, the College Board's proposed AP African American Studies curriculum was rejected, citing that it violated state law and, quote, lacked educational value. LeGarrett King is an expert in black history education. He joins WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell to talk about this issue, starting with how black history is currently taught in the U.S. Systematically, right, black history has not been a major topic within most schools and school districts in terms of the curriculum and in terms of courses offered, right? And by systematically, I'm meaning the official history curriculum that uh, states uh, develop in terms of their standards, right? So there are particular states that mandate Black history to be taught in their public schools. So you have Illinois, New York State, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, California have, has an ethnic studies requirement, Washington State, Arkansas, and Mississippi, they all mandate Black history to be taught in their courses. But early reports on those particular states is that they're not doing a real good job in terms of accountability, right, as well as oversight, you know, in terms of those courses. So there's still tons of schools in those particular states that do not teach Black history, right? You do have a few school districts, such as the city of Philadelphia schools, and I believe Cherry Wood School District out of New Jersey, that mandate Black history to be taken for graduation. But everywhere else, mostly Black history is an elective course. And if we think about instruction, there's a good portion of teachers who do it right, right, who really have a passion for Black history. But the majority of teachers, they have this sort of fear of teaching, you know, about Black history, right? And that fear is situated within not knowing a lot about Black history. That fear is situated in fearing that they will say the wrong thing or be called out or be called racist, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a very kind of 
personalized and individualized understanding of the course and not necessarily thinking about the students involved who really want a robust Black history education. So how would you rank Black history education in the U.S.? I'll give kind of the U.S. maybe a D or a C, a low C, uh, because the thing with Black history, Black history has been a thing since after the Civil War and particularly within you know, Black schools, right, and Black people, right? So yeah. right after emancipation, one of the first things that Black people did was write, you know, with a W and write with a R, right, Black history, right? Because they knew and they understood that the history curriculum, you know, dehumanized them, right? So, so you had tons of Black educators early on who were not professionally trained historians, but they wrote Black history textbooks for their predominantly Black schools, right? So the issue with Black history, right, um, just the topic of Black history, in many cases has not been a problem. The problem has always been, well, what type of Black history are we going to teach, right? So you can have, you know, someone like George Washington Carver who, people would say, oh, okay, great. He's a very safe characterization of Black people and Blackness versus someone like Marcus Garvey, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we've always had these problems, right, in terms of, well, yes, Black history, but what type of Black history? And you saw that in the 1960s when Black history and Black studies courses started to spring up in schools around the nation as a connection to the civil rights movement is that a lot of people thought, you know, hey, but, but we just need to teach Black history as history. And other people thought it was some form of activism, right? The similar arguments that we have today. So um, we can look at Black history as just we take our regular history and we just put Black people in it. And yay, that's Black history. But in reality, Black history comes from Black people's perspectives and voices and interpretations of the world around them. I tell people that in many ways around the country, what we do is we teach about Black history, but we don't teach through Black history, right? Mm -hmm. So when we teach through Black history, right, which is from Black people's perspectives, that historical narrative is going to look totally different than what we have perceived as traditional history, right? Because Black people have their own people, they have their own entry points, they have their own things that they find historically important. In this country, we need to really understand that what's historically important to white people is not historically important to Black people, right? And those are the things that we're struggling in terms of you know, presenting an effective and holistic Black history curriculum. So just regarding some of the content bans that are in place in various states across the country, you have bans on critical race theory, right, which some folks can't even accurately define, but it's banned in Florida. Florida also has the Stop Woke Act. North Dakota banned teaching CRT. New Hampshire banned teachers from discussing race, gender, and identity characteristics. And most recently, the state of Florida rejected a proposed AP African-American studies course, saying it violated state law and lacked educational value. Why do you think Black history education is a target right now? Why is it a threat? Number one, Black people are an easy target. Because, you know, anti-Blackness is rampant in this country, right? And part of this anti-Blackness is how we understand history. 
and how we understand black people in history and the media portrayals of black people and and just the overwhelming discourse around black people right so black people are an easy target right unless there's something that we can see police brutality and george floyd etc cetera, etc cetera. you know civil rights movement with the the water hoses etc cetera, etc cetera. unless we can kind of see it for the most part people believe black people are second class citizens mm-hmm. they believe black people you know are not fully human right they have different beliefs or negative beliefs about black people and who they are right so that's one number two The summer of 2020, I think, scared a lot of people who saw the power structure question, because at the end of the day, and the most ironic thing about the CRT debate or the CRT issue that they manufactured was, in many ways, CRT tries to highlight the systematic aspects of race and racism Mm -hmm. and they have systematically excluded histories about race. And that's the most ironic aspect of it because that's what CRT scholars do. They look Mm -hmm. at things like the Stop Woke Act and talk about how it excludes aspects of Black people, right? Particularly within the uh, field of education, right? And history education. So, So that's the most ironic, you know, aspect of all this stuff, right? But I would say, like I mentioned earlier, particularly teachers are scared to teach Black history. So if you provide that that boogeyman and connect it to Black history, right, then, you know, again, it just makes sense, right? Because they understand that people don't really care about Black people, nor do they care about Black history in that particular manner. For the teachers who do care about the position these bands put them in when trying to teach Black history education, what can they do? Yeah. So you have a two-pronged approach, right? For the ones that really didn't know what to do or they were fearful of even teaching Black history, this right here is just a you know, drop in the bucket. Now, what I will say that it's one thing about banning a particular topic from being taught But then there's another thing about banning books in the library, which is, you know, such a fascist kind of approach. And I don't use that word lightly. I've never used that word before. So the students can't even go voluntarily into their school library to read particular things. That's a very dangerous approach. And I think people really need to pay very close attention, you know, to that. Right. And then for the the teachers that really care, right, about a more equitable curriculum, particularly equitable history curriculum, um, it puts them in a pickle, right? And it really stops them from really approaching um, their art as a teacher, right? I think what is missing is that we're focusing on a curriculum, and in many ways, we're not teaching a curriculum. We teach citizens, And since we're teaching citizens, school districts and teachers and school curriculum makers, they have to really think about, well, what type of knowledge do our citizens need? Because these people are going to be decision makers, Mm -hmm. not just a curriculum, right? It's about citizenship. And it is very dangerous for these particular people who will have dominion over 
black people and people of color as they start to get these jobs. Because remember, you know, out of all the debates um, around affirmative action and all the debates that, you know, there's discrimination against white people, white people still dominate almost every job category that we have in the United States. So I don't understand where this fear is coming from. So these people would be police officers. These people would be teachers. These people would be judges. These people would have all these powerful positions in the future, and they know nothing about Black history. You know, the summer of 2020 and before that, since this is what I've been doing over a decade, you always hear this aspect from white people like, I didn't know that. My school didn't teach me this. My school didn't teach me that. And this will continue. But what if they had that Black history knowledge about systemic racism, about redlining, about all these particular aspects, then maybe they can do their jobs a little bit better without Black harm. What type of curriculum do you think would satisfy conservative opposition to Black history education? Do you think they're even looking for a middle ground? So first of all, I don't think they're looking for a middle ground. This is politics and politics are ugly and they're using kids and they're using education as a way to pull a political agenda. And that's sad. But I will say this in terms of teaching Black history and for those who get uncomfortable about teaching Black history. We are a historically immature society, meaning that we want history to be happy-go-lucky. Mm -hmm. We want it to be progressive, and we want history to make us feel good, right? That's not history. History is about identity. History is about humanity, right? It's about enlightening us of the human condition in the past, the good, the bad, the ugly, mm -hmm. and the indifferent. So because of that, everyone will experience some form of emotions when we learn history. And that is um, healthy because humans can be evil. Humans can do great things, but humans are also complex. So there's no way around teaching history or what I would like to call histories to remind people that there's multiple perspectives in history. They don't like history. The majority of people in this country don't like history. They like fallacies. They like heritage. They like fantasies. So in many ways, what they want to do, and I would suggest this, is that you change the course name from history to just fantasies or fallacies to appease what they want. On top of that, History is manufactured. All histories are manufactured. There's no such thing as a capital T truth in history. There's no such thing as a capital L facts in history. History is manufactured based on the evidence that we perceive and based on who has written the history and their perception. So I think that needs to be taught to our teachers, to anyone that's involved in um, history uh, development, is that there's no pure history. There's different perspectives of history and history is manufactured. So there's never going to be a history that you're going to learn that's not going to affect your emotions. LeGarrette King is an expert in Black history education, and he's an associate professor of social studies at the University at Buffalo. He's also the founding director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University. He spoke with WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell.
Milwaukee is home to a community of students from across the globe, including a number of Iranian students brought here through their connections to the community and their desire to learn. Ashkan Rizvani Naragi was one of these students. Naragi earned a Ph.D. at UW-Milwaukee's Urban Studies program under the direction of Jennifer Jordan, a professor of sociology and urban studies at the university. Naragi had since returned to Iran to work as an assistant professor at the University of Tehran and continue his work on a book about the social history of the city. Then, in 2020, he died in an avalanche while mountain climbing. When Professor Jordan heard the news, she knew she wanted to honor his life and find a way to commemorate his work for his young family. She began working to publish his book called A Social History of Modern Tehran, Space, Power, and the City. And after two years of work, the book was published this past month. Professor Jordan joins me now to talk about this. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's great to be here. So tell us a bit about your former student. He was a very unique and special person. And I know we feel that way about a lot of people in our lives, if we're lucky. Um, but he really he really stood out um, as just uniquely kind and curious and passionate about the world um, and really incisive in, in how he thought about things. What was the kind of work he was doing at UW-Milwaukee? He was, uh, he got his PhD in urban studies here. Um, So he did coursework with us and then his prelim exams and then um, the research for his dissertation. And I was his advisor for that process. He was very interested in uh, studying social movements um, in Iran and neighboring countries. uh, And he himself was from Iran And so we, you know, went through a long process to kind of figure out what kind of research he could do safely. This was even, you know, quite a few years ago, but there were still some concerns there. You know, anytime you're, he was initially interested in interviewing people and anytime you want to interview people in politically complex situations, um, that brings some challenges. So he then we worked really hard together to kind of find a good path. um, And he ended up writing a much more historical um, dissertation, really, I think, no less powerful, but using primarily archival sources. And it seems to be an analysis of Iranian culture, kind of, as you mentioned, historical, how it formed. What was it like working with him through this process? As you say, Iran is a, is a country that is dealing with a lot right now. What was it like working with Ashkan through this process? Uh, Well, again, this was, you know, certainly before um, the current situation, although obviously the roots uh, were there. But I think one of the one of the amazing things is that he had access to archival sources that a lot of scholars in the West don't have access to. So he was able to really bring to light some powerful stories about how Iranian cities and how Tehran in particular changed, especially in the 19th century and then also in the early 20th century. And he was studying places where kind of political thought and discourse happened and the changing locations of those. And so he just provides a really rich account of 
everything from coffee houses to hammams to the courtyards of homes to mosques and places in between. Uh, and then the sort of slow change into the early 20th century, where then streets and squares became more important sites of uh, public political discourse. Now, Ash Khan passed away as a result of an avalanche in Iran. Uh, he had finished this book, it seems, but of course it had not been published. Why did you decide you needed to get this book published after his death? Uh, for starters, it was the only thing I could think to do. It was the, my immediate response. You know, I was far away. At this point, he was already a, a professor um, back in Tehran. Um, so I was I was too far away to be of any real assistance to his widow um, and to um, their son and then their baby girl that was about to be born. So I couldn't offer, you know, material assistance um, or direct emotional assistance and the you know one thing i know how to do is is publish books you know however slowly and and meticulously but but honestly within an hour or so of finding out that he had died um and this was christmas 2020 uh, i just scoured my email to see if i could find the name of his editor uh, of the person that i knew he had been corresponding with um about the book manuscript and i found it and i emailed her and and broke the terrible news and then also asked if she could update me, you know, what state the manuscript was in, if there was any chance that maybe I could somehow carry it across the, the finish line. Um, and happily, he the manuscript really was, was pretty complete. Um, there's still, once a manuscript is finished, there are still many, many steps to take to publish an academic book. And I have some experience doing that. So I, I knew kind of what was up ahead. And it was really a gift um, that we had this well-written, completed manuscript then to work with. Now, the book has been published uh, very recently. As you look back at both Ashkan's work and his life, what do you hope people take away from it? I think um, one of the well, I guess I would say a few things. So first, the book really, it's dedicated to his children. And and in a way, you know, the main reason for me to work on it was so they could hear his voice um, later on when they're older. But it's also, it's a really like rereading it while I was doing the proofreading um, a few months ago. I was just reminded of how powerful it is and how much I learned so much about Tehran, uh, but also about ways of studying cities, ways of studying connections between people. And I think that that was one of Ashkan's gifts too, was really understanding the importance of community, uh, the ways in which people come together and using the kind of careful historical research to understand the past in ways that make us understand the present um, and, and formulate even better questions about uh, the present that we inhabit as well. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Jennifer Jordan is a professor of sociology and urban studies at UW-Milwaukee, and she was the advisor to Ashkan Rizvani Naragi. His book, A Social History of Modern Tehran, Space, Power, and the City, was recently published by Cambridge University Press. 
In about 15 minutes, we'll hear from the lead singer and producer of Milwaukee's Painted Caves about their new track and how he hopes the music brings more unity and hope to people. But first, three restaurants are celebrating February all month. We'll chat with one of them about the Vietnamese staple and how you can get your own bowl. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. We've had a few warm days here in February, but we're not done with winter just yet. And when it's cold outside and when you're looking for something to warm you up, what could be better than a big bowl of pho? Pho is a noodle dish filled with broth, vegetables, herbs, and meat. It's a dish originally from Vietnam, but is popular throughout Southeast Asia and is served all over the world, including here in Milwaukee. Throughout the month, three restaurants in Silver City and Layton Park are celebrating February. Each of them will be offering menu and pho specials throughout the month. Nate Walden works at VNTN, and Cynthia Tea Silva is the Economic Development Manager for VIA CDC. Lake Effect's Mallory Chang joins them at VNTN. So Nate and Cynthia, thank you so much for welcoming me into VNTN. Could you talk a little bit about what this month is all about? So February, it's an event that VIA Community Development Corporation um, has put together for 10 years now. And that is highlighting uh, the businesses here in Silver City uh, along the National Corridor. Um, Like I said, you know, with Vientiane, they've been with us since the beginning. um, And it invites, this event invites people to come and have a, a bowl of pho. Um, for $7 during the month of February, which tends to be a really cold month, um, and, and, and have people try the food, but then also invite them back later on. Um, and hopefully, you know, that's something that, you know, gains more new customers, and also an understanding of what the food is, uh, the food is about, because I think more than anything, um, it's about the, you know, educating others on the goodness of the food, but then also, like, where it comes from. For... A lot of people who may not know what pho is. Nate, could you tell us a little bit what is pho? What goes into the process of making it? The process of making pho takes quite a while to make a good, decent pot of pho. You have to boil um, the bone. You know, the long and the longer you boil it, the better. At home, people tend to usually boil around like eight hours, and then so by the time people start coming in, the flavor is going to be there. Pho. Traditionally, it's uh, beef broth, and it's with uh, noodles. So it's basically beef noodle soup. But here, we also have a variety of others. We can do chicken broth. We can do veggie broth. And the meat, you can go and you can choose chicken. Or for people who are vegan, we do have, the, like I said, the vegetarian broth. And, you know, tofu and vegetables can go in there. We also have duck and oxtail. Growing up eating it as a kid, you don't you don't really think about it nowadays. You're like, hmm, okay, this is good pho. Or 
Yeah, no thank you. You know, you just know what it is So for people who grew up on it. So with that first spoon of the broth, with a good bowl of pho, you get that, that richness of the broth. It's not like chicken noodle soup, like, you know, from the American restaurants. It's something that when you take that first sip, it fills your soul, you know. You get that warmth in your stomach and that, that feeling that it's kind of hard to explain. And on the side, you get a, a garnisher plate of bean sprouts, basil, lime, jalapenos. And here at Vieng Chan, we give you a side of ask for it if we don't give it to you because not a lot of people use it. So there's a shrimp paste and Thai chili peppers. A lot of the Asians, they like to take a bite of their pho, sip on the broth, and bite into the pepper with shrimp paste in it. And a lot of people tell us that our shrimp paste is the best in Milwaukee because the way we season it. So on the table, there is a lot of ingredients that you can season your broth with. There's hoisin sauce, fish sauce, soy sauce, sugar for those people who like it sweet. And then there is beef flavor paste. So each person, each individual is different. Some people might like it sour. Some people might like it sweet. Some people might like it like a light richness. Some people like it, I need that extra beef flavor. So they put in more beef flavor. And, you know, there's spices to make it spicy, sriracha. We have chili oil. We also have fried garlic and uh, crushed red peppers. So it's the good thing about pho is you can season it how you like it. And Cynthia, could you describe what it was like with your first sip of pho? What, was, what, what, what flavors and what feelings came to mind when you had pho for the first time, if you could think back to that. Yeah, absolutely. So actually the first time I had pho was a friend who made it for me and a few other friends. And um, it just felt like I was being taken care of, like so nice, you know, because for me, when I sipped it, I said, okay, this is definitely not noodle soup, like chicken noodle soup. Um, and this is not anything like I have had before. But to me, I think like the like the emotion attached to it, I, you know, that my friend was making it for me, it, it kind of showed me like, oh, you know, like this is how, like this is how I show my love to you, you know? So like for me, like when I come inside Yenchen, like to have a bowl of it's almost like going back to that same feeling of my friend making it for me and I like, just feeling like, you know, like when you are wrapped in a blanket and you just feel so cozy and, and warm and, you know, especially in February, like when everything is so cold and <laughs> like so dead, it just feels like it gives you like some, like, you know, a ray of life. I feel the same way when I have a bowl of pho. <laughs> a lot of good memories, too. And this is the 10th anniversary of February. And I just want to ask to just reflecting about the start of February over 10 years ago, um, how did this celebration all start? Why did Vientian and Thai Barbecue want to start this with VSCDC? So with, definitely with VSCDC, um, it is our mission to see the community thrive. So I think, you know, through our various programmings, you know, with economic development and February being one of them, um, is definitely, you know, we definitely live up to that expectation. You know, there's so many amazing things here, but at the same time, we must, you know, we must attend to the needs of the community, right? You know, being a neighborhood and community-based organization, 
uh, we got to see what our assets are and really highlight those and help people thrive. Last Friday when I came in, I ran into uh, who, you know, started this and who was the, you know, my <coughs> former economic development manager here at VIA. His name is Nathanael Martinez, and Nathanael Martinez, he was um, very active uh, with the businesses, like, throughout the neighborhoods that we serve, but he explained to me that he started a um, conversation with um, the folks at the Asian International Market, and that he had this idea of, like, what if, like, restaurants, you know, would kind of form, like, this event, you know, that later on became February. So, uh, so that was in 2014. And, and, you know, and ever since it's been like one of um, our organization's staple, you know, to support small businesses like Vinchen, where we understand that for the winter months, it tends to be, on, you know, on the lower end when it comes to, you know, people come showing up to places, especially small businesses. So this idea has been every year, you know, like everybody's like looking to forward to February. And what we have been trying to do is like, you know, being able to not only showcase what people already know about February, but also you know, reach out to the wider, like the larger audience outside of just, you know, Silver City um, and, and really invite them to try, you know, the food and then become regular customers. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also just curious too, like, I guess if you have the story or you ha- if you know why, but why did uh, this restaurant want to be a part of February like 10 years ago or why does it want to still be a part of it? I'm not sure from 10 years ago why they want to be a part of it, but I know now that every year we continue to do it because it brings the community together. Like, I was born and raised here, actually. Um, For the longest I can remember, I grew up right here down the street on 30th and National. So this is my community. As you can see on the news and on the stuff, there's a lot of bad things happening. So working together in this community, trying to save our community basically here in Silver City, it's if we don't work together, if we don't want to succeed together, no change will happen. So that's the first step, trying to bring the community together and make sure it's grow together. Right here on National, there's a lot of Asian businesses. So we, you know, we conversate with each other, especially with the Asian international market. You know, we want to show what our culture is about and being here for about two years now i this is my second february because i think we we didn't do it with the covid and then we started doing it again um last year and there's a lot of people who still haven't had laotian food or pho at that so when february comes there's a people talk about oh they're having february and so they bring their friends and family to come try new foods. From seeing that, it brings in people who never had the food before, and we, we explain to them, you know, what it's all about. And not only them trying for there's other stuff on the menu for them to try too, and open their eyes to a whole new food. Like stir-fry basil, we call it pat pa. It's a really popular dish here. You know, it, 
And then when people come in, they're like, oh, what do you recommend? I'm like, I tell them, first off, let's break it down. What do you want to eat? You want to eat soup? You want to eat rice? Or do you want to eat like stir fry noodles? We can take it from there. How do you feel today? Like me, I like it all, but how do I feel today, you know? So that's how I do it. And when we break it down by bit by bit, I'm like, okay, you need to try this one. This one's really good, you know? And like yeah, so we try to be here for like a, like a family, you know. We we can come in and we want you to feel good. I know that sometimes we might be a little busy, you know. We can't take care of everyone at once because it's a small restaurant, and we try to take care of customers like family. Nate Walden works at VNTN, and Cynthia Taya Silva is the economic development manager for Via CDC. They spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang at VNTN. February is happening throughout the month. For more information about each restaurant's menu and pho specials, go to wuwm.com. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, the lead singer of Milwaukee's Painted Caves talks about their new track, The Machine Demands a Sacrifice. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. It's been a long winter. But luckily, we can turn to some locally produced, Middle Eastern-influenced psychedelic surf rock to whisk us away. Milwaukee's Painted Caves released its first album in 2012 and has just released some new tunes with a lot of buzz. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with lead singer and producer Ali Lubad to unpack the story behind this signature track called The Machine Demands a Sacrifice, which you've been hearing in the background. So you've got some new tracks out and some I new do. music. Yes, I and do. one of these tracks we've been hearing a bit from, it's called The Machine Demands a Sacrifice. Yes. And um, so what I would like to do right now is play a little bit of that track. Okay. I love this track. First of all, that's yeah. oh, awesome. You you were saying that you that this almost killed you. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I love this track too. I feel like it's some of the best music I've ever had a part in making. I'm so glad that it's in the world. Kind of like putting a baby Moses in the basket and sending it down a river. <laughs> like you know, you hope it doesn't capsize, or you hope someone finds it and loves it. Yes. And so, what did I say? Oh, it almost killed me. Yes. And I'll tell you why. Because when something about this song, like I'm not a trained musician at all. I just play with incredible people who know a lot more than I do. But what I do know is some of the music I've really found striking and incredible in my life have been some funk stuff like James Brown and Fela Kuti and um, some Afrobeat music, you know, that and something about it that is very different than I think a lot of Western music, 
even though James Brown is Western music, I guess he'd be a little bit less like what I'm talking about. But it's the idea that it's like a riff or a vamp that you continue to play with and evolve. So this idea is that to record something like that, unless you have a really well-rehearsed ensemble of people that like live together, to recreate that in a recording is a colossal work. It really, it took me years to like make this song because um, I recorded people when they came to town and just kind of, you know, and then things happen in life and you take time and everything. But part of it is syncing all this up if you don't have a well-rehearsed, you know, 15-piece band that's playing constantly, <laughs> you have to put it all together. And so the thing that's hard about it is the endless choices because everything works everywhere. Every piece of the song can be interchanged in every other part. It's like a puzzle with no right answer. So it, when I first, like, edited it, I wanted to do, like, an hour-and-a-half version <laughs> because I was just so in it that I I was loving it. And I just thought, wow, that's incredible, like an hour and a half long song. And then I thought, well, I don't I don't really understand how music even gets transmitted anymore because it does it's like something that doesn't exist. There's no record or CD needed or anything. But anyway, it was a very long song. And I kept editing it down and I was thinking, I want to edit it down to like the most essential elements of it. And um, I got to like a nine-minute version that I do have uh, available, but there was a 14-minute version I thought that was better. But anyway, I had edited this particular version that you started to play down to like four and a half or almost five minutes. And um, I feel like I have some pretty essential parts of it, like sonically, that I like a lot. As a side note, this is reminding me exactly about life as a reporter. I mean, music creation is different than than story production, but like we get hours and hours of tape and we have to get it, we have to condense it down to like four minutes of specific yeah. content and and all the choices that you're talking about, you really have to trust yourself in, is this really where this should go or is this the best place? And it's so many combinations. Right. It is. Yes. And, you know, I think in the larger picture, too, of like what we are have gone through and what we continue to go through is like the uh, person living in these times right now, too, is making choices and what you're holding on to, you know, and part of the reason I was, I've been finishing songs that I started a long time ago is that I believe in life, I believe in people, and I believe in the importance of hope and, you know, loving strangers. 
Like, I think that's something that everything physically in our lives, viruses and hatred and rioting and election denial and all these crazy things that have happened almost make you question the humanity of the popular amount of people in in our country specifically, but in the world. And I think the difference is, or something that occurred to me is that usually really sweet, good people are quiet and you don't hear a lot about them. They're just like the silent majority that makes everything else possible. And so I think it's important to remember those people and be one of those people. And so musically, I thought, you know, I really want to share music again. And, you know, hopefully it's helpful to someone or makes them feel good and feel good about life and um, has some sort of, I guess, sincerely a message of some sort of hope. Another interesting thing about your music is how the lyrics are part holistically of the music, but very heavy on the instrumentals. And your instrumentals feel like a journey. Like it kind of, you kind of go and get whisked away and you can go into different lands or different places or, you know. I'm glad you, I'm glad you feel that way. Because, yeah, and I feel like, you know, um, I think, you know, I, I don't want to misquote someone, but I think the guy's name was uh, Heinrich Zimmer or something, that he had a quote that said, the most important things or the most profound things can't be talked about. The second most profound, like, wonderful things in life you can express through art and non-language-type like activities. And the third best things are what you and me talk about every day. <laughs> and and so to get closer to expressing things that are really, you know, sincerely, uh, I don't know, beautiful, important, meaningful, I don't think you can do it with language or it's pretty hard. And, and I think music is one step closer to that. And so I generally want to shut up in the songs as much as I can and only say things that I'm sure are worth saying. I absolutely love that. I've always been drawn to instrumentation and what instruments can share. And you use the vocals as a type of instrumentation. It doesn't take over the song. It's inherently part of it. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, one of the people I sing with, a woman uh, whose whose name is Holly Habig. Mutual friend of ours. Yeah. She is such a, like, lovely lovely human being and um singing with her it's like she has some sort of esp that she knows where you're going before you do and so you know yeah i think you know this this song i think is a really beautiful construction of sound and um hopefully you know my intention is to welcome everyone into it and not exclude anyone been just like a a general like isolation that I think we're coming out of or maybe trying to come out of but not quite there yet and um, 
maybe questioning whether it's a, it's worth coming out of. And I think it is. I think it's it's worth recognizing yourself and other people and acknowledging the oneness of us all. I and, love that. And, you know, the machine demands a sacrifice um, because the opposite of oneness is machinery. It's It's the sense of, you know, unfeelingness, isolation, um, when I think about the machine now, the machine is your iPhone or, you know, your your smartphone and the machine is your Netflix account, you know, that you never go to a movie again. And, the you know, it's the machine that separates us and, and you know, machinery and people can coexist, but we have to be using the technology, not allowing the technology to use us. And... I think we may have passed that. I mean, we could see it in our children. We could see it in different things when a human being is kind of overwhelmed with technology. I don't think it's good. I think it's the technology starts to use us and we, you know, can't sleep because we're looking at our phones or, you know, responding to messages every minute of the day. And I think we got to get back in charge and I think, uh, you know, turn it off. I'm totally with you on that. of Painted Caves. Thank yes. you so much for talking about your music. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it because I really my only intent is to share it. You know, you can listen to the music. You don't even have to buy it because so, if you go to the Bandcamp site, it's free. And if you want to download it, that's great. That was Painted Caves lead singer and producer Ali Lubad speaking with WUWM's Mayan Silver about the band's new track, The Machine Demands a Sacrifice. The band has two additional tracks that you can hear at wuwm.com. wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about some of the local restaurants that are semi-finalists for the James Beard Awards. Plus, Bubbler Talk will look into the history of Kilbourne Reservoir Park in Milwaukee's River West neighborhood. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Yeah.